Welcome to Continuum, the International Business Council podcast, where each episode we sit down with an incredible member of the IBC community, dive in, and learn from their journey. Welcome to Continuum. This is John Fitzgerald, and with us tonight is Ryan Kerrigan of Kerrigan Advisors. Ryan, welcome. Thanks for being our guest. John, great to be here with you. I um, certainly appreciate you taking the time out to talk with us tonight. I'm really looking forward to getting to, to understand your background, you a little bit better, um, and I think our listeners are really going to enjoy your conversation. So to get this rolling, tell us a little bit about yourself. Like, where did you grow up? Um, I'll split the meetings a little bit. You went to Notre Dame undergrad. I want to get into that, just kind of how you chose it, et cetera. Sure, yeah. I grew up in the Midwest. I grew up in Minnesota, and uh, many, many generations of northern Midwestern stock. And um, I went to Catholic schools um, throughout, you know, K through eight, and then high school. And I did not have a family tie to Notre Dame. It just seemed to be in the water. It was just kind of a place without even knowing what it was or where it was. It just kind of seemed like an aspirational place. Um, I told my mom in the first or the second grade that I'd committed to Notre Dame. You could do that back then. It was free, you're a first grader. Um, and so I was like, yeah, I think I'm going to go And uh, you know, I remember she looked at me very kind of quizzically and said, well, gosh, okay, well, study hard. And then, um, you know, interestingly, uh, 11 years after my uh, formal commitment to attending, I remember looking at a, um, some literature in the guidance office and I got to the back of this very nice, shiny, colorful brochure at Notre Dame and getting to the back, it said, I'll never forget the University of Notre Dame, Notre Dame, Indiana. And I like, whoa, it'd be, I thought this was in like New Hampshire or Vermont. I didn't, it, I didn't know it was in Indiana. So little did I know I committed in the first grade to staying in the Midwest. I really thought I was going to the East Coast. Excellent. Well, and, and you were there, not to age you, but... Um, early 90s, which, and, and we're here today talking about the IBC, um, which was really the, the infancy of the SIBC, the Student International Business Council, which you were one of the pioneers of it. Could you talk a little bit about that, if you can remember, you know, kind of where that was in your timing there? Yeah, yeah. Take takes it back. So absolutely, I um I uh, I studied abroad in the uh, famous Alger program that Notre Dame ran. It was just discontinued in the last couple of years, but from 1960 until about 2020, there was a uh, study abroad program in Alger. I did that for a year. I came back and immediately got introduced to the SABC. It actually was a different acronym back in the day, but today the SABC and. Um, you know, it was just a remarkable, albeit very, very young organization. I think there have only been one or two formal boards at that point. Um, it was in its infancy, and I was just absolutely intrigued um, by what was going on. And bear in mind, this is all in the context of 1989. You've got the uh, fall of the Berlin Wall and 1991 dissolution of the Soviet Union, Cold War. And those down probably like ancient concepts today if you've got, you know, students or younger folks listening, but I can't tell you what a, what game changers they were. We really honestly felt that uh, not only had the world changed, but that we could take over the world in a very positive way, that, that democracy and capitalism, and ethical business practices, we were hugely motivated by that. And so that was just a tremendous amount of fun. 
We started with all kinds of different programming, bringing speakers to campus, now Eastern Europeans and former Soviet uh, folks could get over to the U.S. and we would host them, for example. Uh, we we were very, very active. And then we started doing international internships back in the day as well. So it became a big part of my life, um, my junior and senior year, and then thereafter. Uh, and it will serve, I, I think, is a great foundation for where the IBC is today. And we'll talk a little bit later about the IBC, but just for our listeners, I mean, the IBC is the Alumni Association of the SIBC, and the SIBC today at Notre Dame is the largest student organization on campus, has 3,000 members, which is mind-boggling when you think it's, you know, a quarter of the people, a little bit more than um, 30% of the people there at Notre Dame, and it's really become a great entity for the students and, and given a lot of great experience um, to the students. So getting back to you, you go to Notre Dame, you get out of Notre Dame. What did you do after graduating? Well, you know, through the uh, SIBC, um, I got to know the dean of the business school really well. Uh, Jack Kane, a very, very interesting guy. Uh, uh, 1953 graduate from Notre Dame, went on to do really remarkable things in the private sector and then ultimately had some presidential appointments. Um, and then came back to academics at the end. And Jack became a dear mentor and then friend of mine for many years. And, and um, as someone who did not know the business world all that well, he opened my eyes to a bunch of things, but in particular, McKinsey and Company. McKinsey at that time was not recruiting at Notre Dame. In fact, they did very little undergraduate recruiting at all. They took uh, a handful of undergraduates from just a handful of schools every year, and I was able to reach out to them. They were just expanding their analyst program and uh, kind of caught lightning in a box. And so, the best of my knowledge, I am the first. Uh, Notre Dame undergraduate hired directly into McKinsey, and that was in the fall of 1994. So did McKinsey keep you in Chicago, or did you finally were you able to move from the Midwest? Um, well, I did spend a lot of time up in Minneapolis, um, but I no, I did, I did join the Chicago office, uh, traveled extensively, um, and I was there for two years. And then ultimately, I just um, couldn't wrap my mind around an MBA at that time. I had done a finance degree at Notre Dame. I was at McKinsey. I, was, I, I really enjoy the firm. Uh, just could not quite wrap my mind around an MBA. And I've just have always had this passion in international affairs, not unrelated to the stuff we were talking about in the SABC at the time. And so uh, I had uh, thought a little bit about going to the Georgetown School of Foreign Service as an undergrad, ultimately decided to stick with my earlier thoughts about going to Notre Dame. So I, I went out there for my master's. I spent two years there got my master's, um, again, focused on Eastern Europe, focused on Russia. These were kind of the big opening trends of those days. Um, and then ultimately did return to McKinsey Company once again uh, after coming out of Georgetown. So what prompted you, because you're no longer with McKinsey, what prompted you to get out of consulting or I shouldn't say out of consulting, but to leave McKinsey? Yeah, so I went back and the firm was very good to me. And I certainly seemed to have a career path there. Um, I really um, struggled to imagine staying in a large organization. I've always had a very independent streak. I really envisioned myself doing something very independently. But I will say I was struggling because at McKinsey, I was serving these very large clients. So here I'm a part of this global consulting firm. My clients were all these very large companies. So what being independent looked like, I was really struggling with. I knew myself well enough that if I did not get out and take some some chances and take some risk early on, I probably would never do it. 
They move you up very quickly in those organizations. You start making very good compensation. So after two years, I made a, um, a somewhat abrupt uh, decision to go. And I said, you know, if I can get into business school, I think I'm going to use that as my transition. So I applied to Stanford Business School. It was a one and done kind of thing. I got in. Um, I was engaged, probably married at this point or right around the verge getting married and said, you know what, this is the right thing to do. Let's do this. And I'm going to try to figure out what being independent, what being an entrepreneur really means. And so I went to business school. So I, I want to back up just a, probably the equivalent of a two years, Ryan. So out of undergrad and in, in probably that time when you were at Georgetown, are there any things that, that you think that like you truly learned those first few years out of college that served as foundation for where you are today? Oh, gosh, absolutely. Um, I've got a very good Notre Dame friend who often has this way of encapsulating very complicated, uh, uh, wise ideas and very short phrases. And he one time said, he's like, you know, between about age 22 and 26, the best organizations in the world are willing to invest unlimited amounts of money to train you up, and that may never happen to you again. And I thought, gosh, that's awfully simplistic. But the more I noodled on it, I was like, there's really some truth there. So you get into these academy, one of the academy companies, they will invest a lot in your training. But what I really saw is um, I saw, for example, at McKinsey, I, I got fear, at a very young age exposed to very senior management sometimes very successful means executing really well. And sometimes we were brought into teams that were really struggling, businesses that were really underperforming. And we were brought in, for, for example, by the board of directors. What's going on here? How do we solve this company? And so I very quickly was able to observe firsthand wildly effective senior leaders in organizations and wildly ineffective leaders and teams. And I, I guess where Along the way, I felt I had the wisdom to, uh, to um, see the difference between the two, but I learned a lot in those years. So you go to Stanford, you come out of Stanford, and, and what direction did you go then? Yeah, well, I um, again, I would, I'd come out of these large organizations, serving these large organizations, um, and here I'm at Stanford, um, it's where I, I entered the business school um, during the dot-com phenomenon. By the time I get there, the dot-com phenomenon has completely busted. Um, and so I wasn't thinking very strongly about doing in that kind of uh, new technology realm that was not my background, but certainly any plans I might have had were sort of quickly disabused because the NASDAQ fell by 80 or 90% and everyone was kind of running around Silicon Valley looking for a job. Um, I was just trying to figure out how do I take the knowledge I had at that point, still a very young guy, but I felt I learned a lot. Um, spent a lot of time in school by that point. And, um, you know, how do I how do I do something on my own? And so I just did this very amateurish search. I was looking at all kinds of businesses where I might get involved. I might do a, today you might call it a very small leverage buyout. That sounds too sophisticated for what we were doing at the time. And ultimately bought an old metal bending business down in Southern California um, that as a 30-year-old company, was an absentee owner. And um, that's what prompted us to ultimately move to Southern California, where we spent most of the last 20 years. And that company was like your first endeavor into kind of the, what I'm going to call the private sector, so to speak. And are you still involved with that company? No, that, that company, I've, I've been gone for a long time. What that did do is I've, I've really had kind of two parts to this 20 years. And the first part of it was all involved the kind of construction and engineering 
and development. And then the second part, and frankly, the much more fun part is automotive. Um, but because of that company, I thought I was going to build out a portfolio of companies and be kind of tied into that entire kind of real estate architecture engineering world. Um, and so we, that, pers- that led to a uh, real estate company. It led to owning an engineering firm, et cetera. And, you know, to be honest, this really was never my passion. It just was sort of one thing led to another, led to another, and you're trying to build companies, you're trying to pay the bills. Um, and uh, so that was kind of a first part of my outflow career. There was a little silver lining underneath all of this that pulled us in in a very accidental way into the automotive business. Um, I, it would probably take another full-on interview to even tell that story, but let's just say that we got pulled in in kind of a fun, quixotic way. One thing led to another, led to another, and over about a decade, it led to my wife and I forming Kerrigan Advisors, which we've been doing now for the better part of the last decade. And that is a boutique investment bank and to a lesser degree consulting firm, which still the capacity. We like to do the consulting. We just are always capacity constrained. And we focus on automotive retail, that vertical. So everything we do is around automotive retail. And what we observed, I'll stop talking here in a minute because I know I'm going kind of long. But uh, what we observed is there just was not really high quality professional services on the banking or the consulting side as it related to this very large fragmented industry. It seemed like a big opportunity. We jumped in and it's been an extraordinary ride. And, and with Caravan Advisors, which is your business today, are you primarily, is it what, because you're still on the West Coast, are you West Coast? Are you nationwide? Do you expand? No, we're on. We're national. Okay. We're, we've built a national brand. And so we've, uh, we're just looking at some data recently. Uh, our transactions are pretty evenly represented uh, west of the Mississippi and east of the Mississippi. Uh, interestingly, our most active state in the last number of years has been the state of Florida. And so we are absolutely a national firm. And you're also involved, if I remember correctly, on one or two boards. And if you could just share with our listeners just a little insight as to you know, the, the balancing act of being an advisor, board member, versus being your own operating partner in your yeah. your organization. Sure. Yeah. I, I'll tell you, a lot of uh, CEOs, a lot of operators struggle with board roles because uh, boards, they're, they're constituted differently. But even if it's a full board of directors, um, you're still offering advice. And if, because if you're doing and you're deciding and whatnot, then you're undermining the executive and it's not going to work. So something, something needs to give. Um, my consulting training prepared me really well for that. I mean, I have a lot of respect for the individual in the chair. Um, the individual with a title, with a set of responsibilities needs to be held accountable. And that can only happen if they're allowed to make decisions. And then ultimately, they stay in that position or not based on those decisions. And they can consult and they can get advice from whoever they want to. So I'm a big believer in that. And that, that, that's always been very easy for me, I guess, where I started my, given where I started my career. But uh, along the way, I've had a chance to get involved in a handful of companies, uh, early stage companies. Uh, some of them uh, started by folks that I got to know through the Stanford Business School Network. And it's, it's been a lot of fun. So are there any core principles that, that you picked up you know, going back to your youth, high school, college, graduate experiences that that really provided guide provided guidance for you in your life. Well, gosh, I picked up a lot over the years. I think I've had the chance through my education and through the kind of people I struggle myself with. I mean, I'm I've always, I guess, surrounded myself with a lot of folks that I've looked up to. 
Um, there's any kind of core principles. I, I think we were kind of talking about leadership specifically in this context. Um, you know, I think leaders, um, I think a mistake you can fall into is to not eat your own pudding. And what I mean by that is I think it's easy to maybe rely on public relations or marketing or human relations to tell a story. And if it's not who you are and what you're doing, I think that's probably not nearly as effective as many leaders allow themselves to believe. At the end of the day, there's a fair bit of transparency. There's a fair bit of, of uh, truth finding, if you will. And so in my observation, um, leaders in any organization that really are walking the walk are going to be a heck of a lot more effective. And and you do see folks that will say the right things, but their work style and what they're doing, how they're allocating their time, their values may be different. And I, I think that that doesn't go nearly as far as maybe some think it might. So if you had the chance to go back and talk to Ryan Kerrigan 30 years back, college age Ryan, what would you tell him? Oh, golly, it would be a long conversation. I had a, a lot to tell that guy. Um, I have, by the way, a, a son who's 29 years younger than I am, who shares my initials, does not share my name, who's at Notre Dame. So there's this, there's actually very relevant. So what you're asking is what are the conversations of having with him? But to answer your question, um, I think for me, we all have our own strengths and, and weaknesses and blind spots. And for me, my, you know, advice to a younger version of myself would be worry a heck of a lot less and just do more. Um, I, I have a Midwestern risk averse nature. Um, I tend to think and plan a lot. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, to be completely psychologically honest, I still, I think I spent a big chunk of my early career literally worried about kind of putting food on the table and looking back, it's like, what were you worried about? You're always, always going to land on your feet. And somehow something was going to work out. The question is, uh, you know, don't manage the, the, the downside scenario a little bit uh, less and focus more on the upside. So I think for me, that would have been good advice. Yeah, you, you talked about leadership, mentioned leadership a couple minutes ago. Um, can you name a person, or, or even if it's multiple people, who had a, a tremendous impact on you as a leader? Well, again, I've had the chance to work with some really remarkable folks in my career. I will just uh, take it back to someone I mentioned earlier, given what we're talking about here, which is the SIBC and the IBC. Um, the IBC... Um, would not be what it is without the dean or business school at the time back in the day, Jack Kane. Um, Jack was a uh, incredible entrepreneur. He had done. He'd been in the private sector for quite some time. He had quite a career. He also had a PhD that brought him back into the academic realm later in his life. And he was just so darn supportive of us. So I, I really want to sort of you know give kudos to Jack. He passed away at age eighty nine. A couple of years ago, I had a chance to go back to Notre Dame for his funeral. It was actually a pallbearer. Um, and so just a, a life well lived. But Jack was, um, I, I had a lot to learn from him. Uh, he was not me. He was an optimist. He was always focused on the upside. He had a lot of energy, a lot of capacity to think um, and support others to think big. The SIBC being a, a, a really interesting example of that. And so um, I did take a lot out of it. And I, I got to tell you, we stayed very close uh, for many, many years after I graduated. So I, I would 
point out him, but uh, had the chance to see a lot of great ones over the years. So, Ryan, looking at you in your career, what mistakes have you made that more have helped you have helped become a catalyst for you to be a leader? And, and not to draw on the mistake aspect, but more, you know, what are, what are those key learnings that you had in your career that have helped you to the point you are now? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I think most leaders and most entrepreneurs will tell you that you learn more from mistakes than from successes. Um, the, the, often the mistakes that you make, the failures you have allow you to be successful um, because there is so much learning in it. So I'm not the first to say that, but I do think there's a lot of truth in that. I think for, you know, what I, what I learned, and this is kind of uh, going back over some ground we covered, um, I, I had to get comfortable with the idea of taking risk and making mistakes and having outright failures. That was a very uncomfortable, very uncomfortable uh, thing for me. Uh, early on, um, the chair of uh, my board, you know, said, you know, gosh, the situation is just a mess. This is just a failure and this is really good for you. You need this. That was really salt and a wound at that time. I, w- I was not ready for that, but I um, very much appreciate now what he was saying. Um, and so that, you know, we all come into it with our own angle. And for me, just um, being open to failure, admitting failure, that was hard. Um, something I could do probably a lot easier today than I could that. So what do you do today to, to continue to develop as a leader? Hmm. Continue development. Well, I, I read a lot. I mean, I'm, I, I really have always been a voracious reader, very broad. Um, and so that's sort of, I, I certainly try to keep a very open mind and I'm always trying to learn. One thing that I do just naturally, I don't even try to do it, but I, I, I just, I learn from, from watching other people. And and it can't it can be you know some remarkable executive that you're saying gosh I love the way that he or she did this presented this and sometimes it'll just be you know sort of in line at a Starbucks and you'll see someone handle a situation um, so I I guess I'm I'm always a bit of a sponge in taking in what I've perceived to be people doing wise things doing smart things doing impactful things. So I, I I do um, I'm open minded in that way. No, you, you talked when you talked about Kerrigan Advisors. You said you and your wife started the business. You mentioned your son. So talk to us a little bit about family and the importance of family uh, to you, certainly on a personal level. But you know I, the the coexistence and it's probably a much bigger word than that, but that's my word right now. The coexistence of, of family in business. Yeah, well, you know, anyone that, you know, takes on paths of leadership, uh, paths of risk, um, there, are, there are absolute trade-offs and frictions that go with that. And I guess I, I never really considered, you know, sort of a nine-to-five job and maybe having total control of my lifestyle. It was just never going to be me. Um, but yeah, absolutely. Um, there are trade-offs. And I guess um, I don't know that I have quick ways to impart wisdom, I'll just say that um, I married well, um, went to church on Sundays, um, you know, we've had three wonderful kids, uh, happy to say my second, um, just got into Notre Dame, so uh, please congratulations. Thank you. Uh, say a prayer. She's not yet committed, but uh, we'd love to see her there in the fall. Um, 
So, hey, you know, we've got, there's a lots of wisdom on the family and parenting side too. And again, wisdom is, is reacting from failure. So it's not to say that it's been easy. We've gotten it all right. I'll be the first to tell you that we've had a lot to learn and um, made mistakes. But, um, you know, there's no question that, that there's trade-offs when you're working hard, when you're under stress. And I guess you just surround yourself with great people. Um, and, um, and then just force, force the time, you know, for the family. So I guess for all of the years that I had where funds were thin, where stress levels were high, um, you know, we did commit to doing things as a family on Sundays or, or sorry, weekends rather. Um, we always did do sort of family vacations. We tended to repeat family vacations, go back to the same spots every year. And, and we did that even when it would be very easy to say, you know what, I'm too busy and I got too much stress and the, the funds aren't flush right now. We could have easily uh, postponed a lot of that, but I think we did sort of commit to family in those ways and, you know, uh, made it work. Created a great foundation, that's for sure. Um, I, I want to switch. I want to talk a little bit about the IBC a little bit more than what we talked about previously. And in our mission, similar to the SIBC mission, is to create a world where the business community acts as a principled force for the common good globally. Um, I like to say that that may sound a little aspirational at times. I, I think you put it in really great context, really, when you were talking about your time in the SIBC, the early infancy of the SIBC. But it, could you speak to what that really means to you today? Um, again, that mission, kind of the creating a world where business community acts as a principled force for good globally. Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, I, I would say a couple of things. I, I do think that, for example, um, the SIBC has certainly shifted over time. As an example, the university got very uncomfortable with all these international internships we we're setting up. So I know, for example, the focus there is much more domestic and it's much more, you know, it seems to be a great networking opportunity and, and the chance to um, generate job opportunities with consulting firms and banks and, and things like that. And that's fine. Um, I will say something uh, not to be taken for granted is that in the U.S., um, business is a profession. Um, business is considered a professional trade with professional standards. And that is not true universally around the world. The more the U.S. system, the Western systems expand, and I think that there are increasingly acceptance of that, but there, you know, big chunks of the world treated business, if you will, is just trading, just transactional. And whether you'd be selling appliances or rugs or cars or businesses, it was just you kind of optimizing that outcome transaction to transaction. And the US, uh, perhaps in the UK model, has always taken a very different view that I take really seriously. And, I, and I'll say, you know, we're in the automotive industry, for example. Um, we get to work with some of the best folks in our industry. And these are what I call big funeral people. These are the kind of people that when they pass, there's going to be a full, full, uh, you know, sanctuary. And it's going to be people that did business with, with them, people that work for them, people that have known them for decades and really respected what they did in the community. And once in a while, we, we come across, and we've even had clients, I would put in the very, very small funeral category. These are people that may, for example, have had some real success, uh, maybe very prominent, wealthy individuals, but ultimately just did not have the same level of impact, the same level of even perhaps integrity in how they ran the business. And to me, it's night and day. There's no question how I've tried to run my life, um, but you see it. 
So if you were to get a call tomorrow from whatever university, uh, one down the street from you, from Notre Dame, Georgetown, whomever it is, and they want you to speak at the upcoming commencement, and you have the opportunity to talk to these recent graduates who have this, this huge desire to have an impact in the world but don't know where to start, what would you tell them? I would say... Can, if I could break that apart into... In you, can, you can take it any way you want. You can break it into three questions if you'd like. I'm going to start practical and then I'm going to be aspirational. And the practical piece, I think when you're coming out of college or coming out of graduate school, we think in terms of saving the world. And maybe it's a patent um, you know, on a drug that you know has huge impact. Maybe it's starting some hugely impactful company. Uh, maybe it's starting a not-for-profit. We think we think big because we don't we don't know yet. We're just getting started. So let me start with a practical, and that is to say that getting married, having kids, being a big part of your community, being highly charitable with your money and your time, running an organization, having a profession in that community that is that is of high integrity and gives back. Um, that's an accomplishment. And I know, but in a, in, a, in a commencement speech, that doesn't sound all that interesting. But I will say that if you can do all those things in your life, you really are having impact in the world, uh, perhaps at a very local level, maybe at a community level, maybe broader, but there's nothing wrong with that. And that, that is something that I think at 22, we don't recognize. Thinking bigger, um, there's no question that having passion and pursuing your dreams is what a lot of our most interesting and most successful leaders do. Um, if I got a do-over, as an example, just in the business world, I, I, I do things fell outside the business world, but just in the business world, um, I've always loved the car business. Uh, I put some real restrictions on myself coming out of college and coming out of grad school. I thought of the auto business as being dominated by some very large old companies in Detroit, and I didn't see myself fitting in there. How do you be an entrepreneur? And I, and I didn't recognize what massive um, ecosystem automotive is. And you've got small companies, you've got big companies, you've got startups, you've got technologies. Of course, the industry's changed dramatically. Now, now all we talk about in automotive is startups and technologies. But that was not true when I was coming out of college. But I, I didn't think uh, bigger, big enough or broadly enough to pursue my passion. I should have gotten in the automotive industry at least a decade if not 15 years early. So I'm going to switch games once more. What do you believe it takes to have a great and meaningful life? You got some big questions here. I know. Uh, What's going to make you think? Gosh. Um, well, golly, I think uh, as you go through life, you do think more about that. Um, I'll say some things that are going to be pretty trite, but they're probably darn true. And that is, you know, faith and family and integrity and surrounding yourself with really high quality relationships. Um, I just had a milestone birthday here in Lake Tahoe and had a chance to get together um, a really significant number of friends accumulated over uh, a lifetime and it was very, very special. So I guess I'm starting to see, you know, kind of how that plays out. Um, Certainly having some meaning and having some passion and, and that could be tied to your career and it could be tied to your philanthropic and not career interests. But the more you can mate your interests with what it is that you do, um, I think that that goes a very long way. 
And then I'm just a big believer in goals. I, I think big goals, little goals um, are a way to keep moving forward. It helps me stay focused. And so I'm always thinking about what is in a slightly longer term or aspirational things I'd like to do. Um, but then I'll also just do things quarter to quarter, year to year, and that are almost more checklist-like um, that um, just you know keep me kind of moving through and making sure that we're keeping it interesting. So what are you most proud of in life so far? Well, gal, golly, um, uh, I'll bring it into two professionally and, and personally. Yeah. I hope, uh, I hope no one in my family is listening to this, uh, nor gets access to this, but having my two oldest, I've got three kids, the two getting into Notre Dame was pretty special. Um, going to be really, uh, honest about that. So again, I hope this doesn't get too close to them. Um, back to them. Um, and um, I, I think the entrepreneurial success of the last decade with Kerrigan Advisors, being in the sector that I'm most passionate about, um, working with my wife, building a very strong culture, um, building a very big brand within our our vertical has been it's been an incredible life accomplishment. And having been in the trenches and run some businesses that did not have that level of success and that level of of um, uh, sort of viral success, if you will. I know what I know what the slog is like, and this has been a lot of fun. So a couple minutes ago, you said that you love to read. So are there any books you've recently read or book that you'd love to recommend to our community? Sure. Yeah. Um, I'll tell you one that uh, it's a good decade old, but I missed it and I just read it recently. It's referred to me by a, a good friend. It's called Devil Takes Behind the Most. And it is a remarkable read about the history of financial speculation. It's going to go through some chapters that many will know and the Dutch tulips and the railroad stocks and all that kind of stuff. These are kind of all ring true to most of us. But it talks about what I sort of took out of it is as how when new ideas come into the financial markets, speculation and it getting overblown and overvalued is very logical. And it kind of walks through the psychology of the markets as to why it almost has to play out that way. So I thought that that was really quite interesting. There's another book that I haven't read in a long time, but I but uh, for those that are newer in their finance careers, the random walk down Wall Street, and it's just hugely influenced my personal investments over the years. Um, I, I've done lots of invest types of investing. I've gone into early stage companies. I've invested with a Stanford Business School classmate who started a venture capital fund. Um, but I do it with my eyes wide open. I do it with understanding that these are, that earning a risk premium commensurate with the risk that you're taking is hard. And so I've never deluded myself on any investment that I've made, whether it be, uh, you know, sort of aggressive or conservative as to what I'm doing. I guess that that book just opened my eyes to, to how that work works. And then, um, Another one that was really impactful to me at a very hard time. Uh, I was just really slugging it out in my business, and um, my my mind was just worried. I was not in a good place, and it was actually a priest um, in Los Angeles, a kind of a very well known priest in L.A. pulled me aside one day and he said, "You got it. You got to." read The Power of Now. I'd never heard of it before. It's a well-known book. And it just talks about how the mind can just literally kind of go off on its own tangents, its own vectors, very removed from who you are. 
And that was a very powerful read of my life when I was under a tremendous amount of stress. So for those that haven't come across it yet, I recommend it. And for those in particular that, you know, dig themselves into quite a hole, which is entrepreneurs we tend to do from time to time, it's, it's a great book. Four great recommendations. Thank you, Ryan. And now for the last question. If you could change one thing in the world, what would it be? If I could change one thing in the world, what would it be? Well, I, I, I'm sure there, I mean, you could think of all kinds of things around curing cancer and ending poverty and all that kind of stuff. Um, I got to say that I'm, a, I'm um, something that has always troubled me is in this in this country and it's only gotten worse in my professional career and that is these very unsustainable fiscal trends that we have in our country we have inherited this extraordinary country i always joke that we got a great lot the united states is a great lot in the subdivision of the world um and we have really just kind of assumed that we continue to spend um, in a way over the last few decades in, in, in ways that we just can't, we can't continue. We will be crowding out investment in infrastructure and in education. And I fear that we are going to hand a country over to the next generation that's not nearly as vibrant as the one that we inherited. And that is my, one of the things that I do, you know, sort of throughout life is I, I always want to sort of leave something better than where I started. And I don't believe as a, uh, a political you know, sort of animal that we've been doing that in my lifetime. And it really bothers me in a big way. So if we could sort of reset the table and get somehow this big complicated democracy to converge on ideas that are much more sustainable so we could hand down this amazing country to my kids and grandkids and great grandkids, um, that would bring just huge, uh, huge joy to me. Wonderful. Ryan, thank you. I really appreciate your time. Um, this was fantastic for me. I know our listeners are going to love it, and I wish you the continued success. Well, great. Thanks, John. Really, real pleasure to be with you. Thank you for listening today to Continuum, the IBC's podcast series. If you enjoyed our conversation, please subscribe so you don't miss our next episode. And for more information about the IBC, visit our website at ouribc.com. That's just O-U-R-I-B-C dot com. Thanks.